Hello everyone and welcome to episode 4 of Infraction, our true crime podcast. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. And today we'll be telling you the story of potential serial killer Michael Gargiulo. So this story starts way back on the 13th of August of 1993 in Chicago, Illinois. Trisha Parcaccio, an 18-year-old high school student, had spent the day celebrating the end of summer with her friends. It was the last week before everyone was leaving to go to university, and so the friends had all planned one last evening together doing a scavenger hunt party. The timeline on the next bit is a bit unclear because there were no witnesses, but based on statements from other people who attended the party, it's thought that Trisha got home at around 1am. She walked up to her back door with her key in her hand, and she was about to put it in the lock and turn the handle, when out of nowhere, someone jumped out of the bushes and grabbed her arm. Her arm was twisted so hard that it broke and then Trisha was stabbed 12 times and left for dead, laying on her back doorstep. Some seven hours later, Rick Parcaccio, Trisha's dad, woke up and made himself his usual cup of coffee. He took his mug and walked out the house to go and get something from his van. As he stared down the path into the back garden, he saw two white tennis shoes on the ground. He stood, shocked and confused, and then he ran over. He found Trisha's cold, blue, lifeless body and screamed for his son Doug to call the police. He then phoned his wife, who had left for work earlier that morning, and told her that Trisha had been hurt. She came home and was completely inconsolable. The police collected evidence from Trisha's body, but unfortunately, a lot of the crime scene had been contaminated by poor policing and failure to close off the crime scene as soon as the police had arrived. Evidence was collected but mislabeled, um, and other than a suspected DNA sample taken from Trisha's fingernails, no other evidence that was collected pointed to who had done this. There were no leads and there were no arrests. The Parcaccio family tried to mend their broken hearts, but it was hard to do that in the house where Trisha had been killed, so they moved out of the house for a few years. After four years, they returned to the neighbourhood and moved back into that same home. Upon their return, they had a visit from one of Doug Parcaccio's high school friends. His name was Michael Gargiulo. Michael asked if he could speak to Rick Parcaccio, but was told that he was out at work. He asked if he could wait, and so he sat silently at the kitchen table for an hour before Rick came home. When Rick got home, he said that Michael looked uncomfortable and, just as he opened his mouth to tell Rick why he'd come round, Michael's father and sister walked into the house and told Michael that they had to leave. This whole encounter made the Parcaccios feel incredibly uncomfortable. They said they both felt like Michael knew something about Trisha's death and that they felt that he was going to admit something to them. They told the Chicago police, but when the police looked into it and went to the Gargiulo residence to talk to Michael, he was nowhere to be seen. The police didn't bother to find out where Michael had gone, so... Once again, this case went cold. Okay, so this is kind of interesting. So just to clarify, there's no evidence that he's done anything other than the murder itself at this point. There's no evidence that it's Michael Gargiulo who's done this. The Parcaccio family basically think that he's essentially a very strange man who came round, looked like he had something to get off his chest. And I think, to be honest, it might be a bit of a tenuous link, but they have kind of linked it to Trisha's death. Other than the, there was DNA evidence on Trisha's fingernails, but other than that, there wasn't any DNA evidence of any kind. So they actually had no suspects. They didn't really think that Michael was much of a suspect to look at because they didn't bother to go find out where he'd moved to. Um, So I don't really think that he was of any interest to them whatsoever. There's no evidence of like, um, this is what I was actually asking, but I swerded it really badly. Um, There's no evidence for a sexual assault or anything at this point. It's just a straight up murder. (laughs) I thought you were talking about Michael. (laughs) Sorry, I should have stopped you. <laughs> I did. I worded it so badly. But basically, I'm just surprised that um, um, this appears just like a, a murder and there doesn't seem to be any other particular motive to it at this point. It seems quite unusual. Oh, yeah. No, okay. So there is there is literally nothing else. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be any sexual assault. There doesn't seem to be um, any kind of 
other injury and she was left for dead so they think that she died sort of during the night which is obviously incredibly harrowing because she was laying on her back doorstep and she had her keys in her hand um but it, it seemed like quite a blitz attack um he came out of nowhere he pulled her arm broke it um and then stabbed her 12 times yeah and then left her for dead so there doesn't really seem to be any kind of other motive at play here okay so we'll skip forward now to 2001 and Michael Gargiulo has moved himself to the so-called glitzy Hollywood in Los Angeles to trace his dreams of becoming an actor. So he managed to secure one role as a boxer in a budget film, but other than that, from what we've researched, it looks like his acting career was incredibly short-lived. So in order to pay his bills, he starts working for an air conditioning company and was sort of just a really a general all-round handyman. One day, Michael was walking down the street and he sees someone struggling to change a flat tyre on their car parked outside a house. He offers to help the guy, and as he was offering to help, a young, gorgeous blonde walks out of the house and over to the car. This was 22-year-old Ashley Ellerin, who's one of the roommates of the man who was fixing his car. So Ashley and Michael start chatting, and Michael asks for Ashley's number. He's a fairly attractive man, and Ashley was very sweet-natured, and so gave it to him. Reports from friends say that he wasn't really Ashley's type. She'd actually dated quite a few celebrities in Hollywood, and I don't think we can count him as one at this point. (laughs) Uh, But regardless of the obvious lack of interest, um, Michael's continuing to force herself into his life. He'd regularly call their house phone, turned up outside their house. Uh, There was a time when they were having a house party, and he turned up completely uninvited. Ashley's roommates report that Michael just sat on the sofa the entire night, staring at Ashley wherever she moved around the room. So, like I said, he's just really a bit of a handyman at this point. So, he had actually been over to their house a few times to fix their heating and things like that. But romantically, there's no sign that Ashley was interested in him and they had no relationship of any kind. On February 21st, 2001, Ashley was home getting ready for a date with absolutely one of my top 10 men, Ashton Kutcher. Both her housemates were out. And there's slight confusion over timings here, but it was the night of the Grammys and it's thought that Ashton and Ashley were going to meet up um, and go to one of the Grammy after parties. Ashton Kutcher rang Ashley Ellerin's phone at 8.24pm and she said that she had just gotten out of the shower and was just getting ready. Later that night, just after 10.30pm, Ashton turned up at Ashley's house and knocked on the door. He said that the lights were on, but nobody answered. He went round to one of the windows and looked through and saw what he thought was red wine stains on the carpet. He assumed that Ashley had already left to go to the party because he admitted that he was really late for the date. The next morning, Jennifer DeSis... Oh, shut up. Jennifer DeSis... Oh, well, they've all got fuck. such Hollywood names, didn't they? I know. <laughs> Jennifer DeSisto. <laughs> the next morning, Jennifer DeSisto... I feel like I can't do without the accent you just put on. <laughs> The next morning, Jennifer DeSisto, Ashley's other roommate, came home and found Ashley laying at the top of the stairs covered in blood. She had been stabbed 47 times. There was no sign of a break-in. Ashley must have known her killer. Ashley's housemates were quick to tell the police about Michael. They found him incredibly creepy and had always said that he had a weird fixation with her. However, police were chasing their own leads. I guess it's hard at this point because in both instances here, I mean, being creepy isn't a crime, is it? And so far, obviously, we're starting to wonder if there's a link. But actually, in both cases, if you were a police officer, it would be reasonably hard to follow up with Michael based on anything that anyone said at this point. Also, because they don't know about this crime that happened in Illinois, um, in Chicago. So they, they literally don't know about this anyway. So they haven't got any 
reason to link it or to think that Michael is a violent man or anything like that. So yeah, you're right. From their point of view, being told that, oh, someone had essentially, someone fancied Ashley and he you know, a bit fixated on her. It's not, you're right. It isn't a crime and probably not enough to, um, not enough from their point of view um, as like a motive for this crime, which is why they were kind of chasing these other leads. So one of the leads that the police were following up was that Ashley was having an affair with their property manager, Mark Durbin. So they found his DNA on her. and We're not quite sure what DNA they found, but police said that it suggested the two had been intimate that evening. So I'm guessing they probably found semen or something like that. However, Mark was soon ruled out as a suspect, as was Ashton Kitcher. I cannot believe that she was with someone else the night before a date with Ashton Kitcher. It's really making me... I can't even get a text, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so actually, it was on the night. And as we like go on to see, um, there's quite strong evidence that Mark Durbin was actually with Ashley when um, Ashton called a- Ashley. This is so confusing. But when Ashton Kutcher called Ashley um, at that um, that 8.24 call, um, Mark was actually in the like, house at that time. Okay, we need to find some photos of Mark because he must be... a super good looking guy no he's not <laughs> oh all about the personality on that one then <laughs> <laughs> okay so for whatever reason at this point i guess maybe some of the reasons that nad and i've already touched on uh, the police didn't really look into michael that much the housemates hadn't actually given the police michael's last name because they didn't know it i guess that's not that unusual that you wouldn't know your handyman's surname um, but that said, you'd kind of think they would have been able to figure it out. Yeah, that's that surprised me as well. Like the fact that he wasn't just on, regardless of if you're going to look into him or not, you would think that he would be on some kind of suspect list or something. There was no DNA evidence after that in the house that offered up a new suspect. So unfortunately, this case also went cold. Then in 2002, just over a year after Ashley's brutal murder, Los Angeles Police Department received a call from Chicago. The Chicago police said they have a case that's been cold for almost 10 years, but due to the new introduction of DNA technology, they want to track down a man they think has moved to LA so they can get a sample to test against their evidence. They mentioned that the man they're looking for is no other than Michael Gargilo. The police officer says, holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) And where is this police officer from, Sally? (laughs) It just surprised me that you'd written the words, holy shit. No, that's what he said. Oh, I think, I don't know if that's a direct quote, actually. <laughs> it's just an awkward thing to to repeat. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> the police officers were obviously pretty shocked at this point because they realised then that he was on the list of potential suspects for the murder of Ashley. The LA police therefore agreed to help track Gargiulo down and provide them with a DNA sample. Surprisingly, about this case actually, is that Michael gave a sample of his DNA and what's less surprising to us perhaps is that it was a match to the DNA sample found on Trisha Parcaccio's body. Mm-hmm. At this point, the Parcaccio family are pretty overwhelmed by this. Their daughter had been dead for almost 10 years with no justice and I guess it finally must have felt like they were about to catch her killer. Unfortunately, because what Nad touched on earlier, the way the crime scene's been handled, it was unclear if this DNA had been taken from under Trisha's fingernails or on top of her nails. Mm. Um, So to try and kind of make this a bit more clear, under her nails would have suggested that she'd had quite close physical contact with Gargiulo, but on top of her nails could have just been picked up by casual contact in a public place. So the police later found that Trisha had actually been in Gargiulo's car two days before her death and so the district attorney deemed that this was not enough evidence to charge him with the murder. 
Trisha Pocaccio's case therefore remains unsolved. Shortly after handing over his DNA sample to the police, Michael Gargiulo once again packed his bags and left Hollywood. He moved about 30 minutes east to El Monte. In 2005, so this is four years after the murder of Ashley Ellerin and 11 years after the murder of Trisha Parcaccio, another woman is found stabbed to death in her bed. The victim was 32-year-old Maria Bruno. She was the mother of four children under the age of six. The attack on her was described as personal and aggressive because the killer had completely mutilated her body. He had even cut off her breast and put it in her mouth. She was found by her ex-husband, Irving Bruno. He had come over to the house because he hadn't been able to get a hold of her. Just like Ashley Ellerin, there was no DNA at the crime scene. The attacker had entered by removing a screen from her kitchen window and then had used a knife that he had picked up from the kitchen knife block. There was no DNA evidence at the crime scene, but in the car park just outside her complex, there was something. Did you ever go to the swimming pool and have to put on those blue covers over your footwear? Absolutely, I did. (laughs) So in the car park, there was one of these like blue booty cover thingies. And on that blue cover, there was a drop of Maria's blood. So during 2005 in El Monte, Michael Gargiulo had actually settled down and had a baby with his partner. Unfortunately, or I don't know, maybe maybe fortunately for them, having a normal life in one place was just not enough for him. So he up sticks and moved to the beautiful beaches of Santa Monica. Santa Monica is still in California. So Hollywood, El Monte and Santa Monica are all within a sort of hour radius of each other. Okay. In 2008 in Santa Monica, another lady was attacked while she slept. So I actually think this is very interesting, and I guess as is common with serial killers, the time between these murders is getting shorter and shorter. So there were seven years between Trisha and Ashley's murders, and then four years, like I said before, between Ashley and Maria's, and then just three years between Maria and his next attack. So the gap is definitely getting smaller, but it does make me think that for a killer like this, obviously there is progression here because the gap is getting smaller, but it does make me wonder if there were other victims that we don't know about, because you know, four, like three years, four years, that's still a long time to go without sort of, you know, um, that sounds horrible, but like satisfying that urge. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I think what's interesting here is the clear uh, escalation in his behaviour. So we've just heard then, obviously, uh, the mutilation is a huge step up from Mm -hmm. what the first killing sounded more sort of like a frenzied stabbing. Mm -hmm. So if you were to link these crimes, I think, like you say, I definitely think there's the possibility that there may be other victims we don't know about. But also I do find it interesting seeing escalation in behaviours here, which I think I've read about definitely in other cases before. Actually, that's really interesting that you say that because... um, Ashley Ellerin's attack, obviously, like you say, very frenzied. She had 47 stabs, um, but no kind of mutilation or anything like that. Whereas, um, obviously, Maria Bruno's uh, murder was described as incredibly personal and aggressive. That does seem like quite a big jump to go from sort of just stabbing to then fully mutilating a body. So that actually does maybe suggest that there might be other victims that we just don't know about. Yeah, absolutely, where, like you say, the the pathway's a little bit less severe. Mm -hmm. So back to this 2008 murder. The victim here was 28-year-old Michelle Murphy. She was sleeping when she was woken to a violent attack. She actually woke up on the first stab, which is just a completely horrific thought. Her instincts then took over and she started fighting back, which I just think is so brave. So she suffered multiple stabs to the chest, shoulder and to her hands. During the struggle, the attacker was accidentally cut with the knife and started bleeding heavily. Michelle saw this happen, puts her feet up on the attacker's chest and kicks him backwards off the bed. The man got off the floor, ran to the front door, which was open. Police later realised he'd entered through a window that was open and then opened the front door for an escape route. 
before he then attacks Michelle. So it's quite well thought out at this plan. Mm-hmm. And again, maybe touches on some of the maybe pro- progression and experience yeah. in murders that we've talked about before. As the attacker run to the door, Michelle stumbles out of bed and follows him. The attacker stopped, turned round and said, I'm sorry, and then fled the scene. Michelle immediately rang her boyfriend, who called the police for her. On the way to the crime scene, police call Michelle and ask if she can describe her attacker. At this point, they know he's injured, so they want a description to get out to local hospitals. Michelle thought that he was male, around 5'11", and she said that she didn't see his face, but said that he was definitely left-handed. Which, God, I can't imagine even noticing that. I wonder if that had something to do with, I guess, if... It's hard, isn't it? Because if if someone is on top of you, stabbing you, I think you're right. I'm not sure that I would immediately notice whether they were left-handed or not. But that's quite interesting that she picked up on that. Yeah, definitely. So then the police arrived. They found so much DNA evidence because this guy's blood was all over the bed, all over the steps and front door and continued out into the alleyway. Police tested their blood against the database and it matched Michael Gargiulo. They tracked down his address and were completely shocked to see that they'd literally been just outside his home. He lived opposite Michelle. Mm. They went to his place, arrested him, and when in his home, one of the officers had a look around and he said in certain rooms, if he looked out the window, he could see straight into Michelle's apartment. Because because of this, and this is a genuine 100% truth, I now have to sleep with a nightlight on because there are so many freaking people who can see straight into my flat. <laughs> what, so you want to see if they're staring at you? Yeah, honestly. So when, when we were like researching this, I'm like, when I saw that bit about in certain rooms, you can see straight into the, to um, her apartment. Any room that I'm in, there are probably at least three, like two or three different flats around us who can like look straight in. And I was absolutely, I'm just terrified by it. <laughs> but then by using a nightlight, aren't you just giving them better view? No, because then when I wake up in the night, I can just like look around and I don't have to like scramble for my phone and try and like, <laughs> and try and like see if someone's broken into my flat, which is hilarious because Matt's always just like, why do you think that anyone wants to come and break into this flat? Like you have nothing to offer them apart from like your soup maker. <laughs> well, and yourself. There's <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>, nothing. <laughs> Another thing I think is interesting is that when the police turned up at Michael's to arrest him, he actually asked them which agency they were from. And I think we can only assume this is because he was trying to work out what crime he mm-hmm. was being arrested for. Once they then had him in custody, he didn't really say anything to the police that could help them. They started looking into previous places he'd lived and any crimes that were there. They linked him to the murder of Ashley Elrim because his name had already been on the list of suspects. And they saw he'd also been living in El Monte at the time Maria Bruno was murdered. And the elastic bit of the boot cover that was found in the car park outside Maria Bruno's home was a bit of DNA. They ran it and, sure enough, it matched Gargiulo's. They dug further and realised that at the time of Maria's murder, Gargiulo had been renting the apartment opposite hers. When searching that property, they found an identical blue shoe cover in the loft. Living opposite both victims seems like a bit too much of a coincidence for the police. So they looked up his Hollywood home address and, sure enough, he lived just a block away from Ashley Elrin. Later, witnesses confirmed they saw him sitting in the park opposite her home almost every day. So at this point, this is the sort of thing that kind of makes me feel weird because we said earlier that being kind of creepy is not a crime, but actually now they're linking it, the evidence was there all along in most of these cases, it seems, isn't it? Yeah, and he was always a name on their list. All they had to do was just look a little bit harder. Yeah, and I hope that now maybe with uh, better kind of technology and centralised databases that maybe it's easier to link crimes like this. I guess probably as little as 10, 20 years ago, it was probably really hard to connect in state crimes. 
Yeah, exactly. Because obviously it is so different in America. Um, it's so different to crimes here. Like if a crime is committed in Sheffield and there's DNA evidence, then do you know what I mean? They would link it to a crime if it happened in Hampshire. Yeah. Whereas obviously in America, um, like you say, interstate crimes aren't usually linked that quickly. Um, yeah, absolutely. Because I guess the database would just have to be absolutely gigantic. Yeah, and yeah, and they're just completely separate jurisdictions as well, aren't they? Yeah, 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 yeah. and they exactly, and they have different, they have different laws um, and different ways of handling crimes like that. So Michael Gargiulo was quickly charged with the murders of Ashley and Maria, and also the attempted murder of Michelle Murphy, and was remanded in custody pending his upcoming trial. Unfortunately, the police still did not have enough evidence to charge him with the murder of Trisha Parcaccio. However, in 2010, 48 Hours, which is like a, a true crime docuseries thing, did an episode on Trisha Parcaccio and it triggered something. Two of Gargiulo's former friends had seen the episode and seen how distraught her family were, and they came forward with some information. They said that once when they'd all been working as bouncers together in California, Gargiulo started bragging and saying that he'd killed a bitch back in Chicago, and then he said, I killed a bitch and left her for dead on the steps. So those are both direct quotes. So if you can remember, Trisha Parcaccio was left for dead on the steps outside her back door. Yeah. The police then said that this was enough information to charge Gargiulo for this murder. However, because like we've just mentioned, um, the way the legal system works in America, Gargiulo can't be convicted of this murder in California because the murder happened in a different state. It happened in Illinois. Uh, therefore, he'd have to be extradited back to Illinois to stand trial. For various reasons that are quite honestly really unclear, Gargiulo's trial didn't actually start until early 2019, despite being arrested in 2008. Oh my god. Yeah, so that's 11 years? Yeah. But at the trial, he pled not guilty to both the murders of Ashley and Maria, and not guilty by reasons of insanity for the attempted murder of Michelle Murphy. So do you think he pleaded not guilty because he thought there wasn't enough evidence, whereas clearly on Michelle's there 100% was? Yeah, without a doubt. Without a doubt. He's really, not to know, don't want to fucking toot his horn or anything, but he is He is smart. Yeah. And I think that is exactly why, because he knows that they've got no evidence that can link him. And the evidence that they do have, so the tiny bit of evidence on the boot cover, it's a very tenuous link at best. But yeah, like, like you said, his... Blood is all over the crime scene at Michelle Murphy's house, so he can't plead not guilty to that. But of course, he can use the caveat of um, insanity. It's interesting because a lot of criminals have been known to use uh, insanity as a, a defence because they seem to think that there'll be a better thing waiting for them. Mm -hmm. But I do hear, and obviously I've got no evidence to back it up but i have heard actually of a lot of criminals then desperately trying hard to get back into a prison system because actually being completely sane um in an institution and in a uh environment that's designed for people who aren't or maybe require quite heavy medication etc is actually far worse than prison itself that is so fascinating. I had actually never considered that. I'd never considered what it must be like if you are genuinely not suffering some kind of mental illness to be in a place where everyone around you is and people are desperately trying to pump you with medication and fix you and have all these sessions. That's actually so interesting. That's a really interesting yeah, thought. Yeah, there's a very, um, there's a famous kind of anecdote uh, and it's in a TED talk actually I first saw it about a guy who does exactly that and then tries to prove his innocence and... Uh, when asked why the hospital wouldn't let him out, um, they said, but why, of course, he's a psychopath. Why else would you pretend to be insane? <laughs> <laughs> that is so... <laughs> yeah, that is so good. <laughs> 
So at the trial, the prosecution painted a pretty bleak picture of Michael Gargiulo as someone who was obsessed with serial killers, specifically Ted Bundy, which when I read that, I was kind of like, yeah, but are we not just obsessed with them as well? <laughs> yeah, I think the world is. <laughs> but the prosecution also posed to the jury that Gargiulo had studied forensic science in order to be able to successfully carry out these murders. Uh, this was, in fact, supported by witness testimony from a man called Merkel Hoffman, and he is Gargiulo's self-titled ex-best friend. And Hoffman said that Michael Gargiulo used to brag about the fact that he'd know how to kill someone and how to do it properly because he knew the mistakes that other serial killers had made and he knew how DNA evidence worked, which actually makes a lot of sense considering he's carrying out these incredibly vicious, violent, aggressive attacks and not leaving any DNA evidence, really. Yeah, that's it does sound incredibly hard to do when you think DNA is, what, a hair strand. But also just, like, other things... Like the fact that there are no eyewitnesses that see him climbing through these windows and things like that. So I think it was Maria Bruno who lived in an incredibly secure, like apartment complex kind of thing. Um, and she said, I think she'd said to one of her friends that the reason she'd chosen it was because she felt safe there, which is really sad considering what happened and the fact that her killer was living opposite her. Um, but the fact that he's not seen climbing into anyone's windows and things like that, and also obviously he left the door open, surely someone else would have seen that. I find it fascinating and there's no eyewitnesses to any of these crimes either. Yeah, absolutely. And I almost wonder if it's that sort of cliche of hiding in plain sight. If you saw something so extraordinary as a man climbing into someone else's house, on the one hand, I like to think I go, oh, that's quite strange. But actually, I don't necessarily think my first thought would be God, it's someone going to kill someone. Do you know what I mean? You might just think, oh, they're up to something strange with their gut. No, I absolutely agree. I don't know what I would think either. I really don't know what I'd think either. It reminds me kind of when I was at uni and I got locked out and I had to climb through the downstairs window and like four different people came past and it was like the world's tiniest window. I was kind of hanging in and hanging out of it and no one said anything. No one cared, which is actually <laughs> bizarre because then like I really could have been robbing the place of doing anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you you almost don't call out behaviours that seem so extraordinary and and so brazen. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so during the trial, the prosecution dubbed Gargiulo as the boy next door killer, the Hollywood ripper, and also the chiller killer, which I think is because he worked for an air conditioning company. But And that's pretty shitty, isn't it? Not the best one, is it? <laughs> um, also, in an absolutely bonkers twist, the prosecution took the jury on a road trip to visit each of the crime scenes so they could point out just how close Gargiulo had lived next to each of his victims, which seems absolutely bananas to me. I don't think that would ever happen here, would it? No, and also doesn't seem particularly necessary. I mean, you can look at a small version of a map and appreciate quite how close someone lives. I mean, everybody knows what you mean when you say they live across the mm. road. I wonder if it was just more the sort of shock factor of it, of like being in the, in such a close vicinity to where the victims had died and things like that. Maybe the, the prosecution thought it was just going to shock them. But it just seems a strange and... You almost question, I don't know why it wouldn't be, but you almost question, is that a, a lawful standard tactic? Yeah, I don't know. I've never heard of that Yeah, before. I hadn't heard of it before this case either. So the prosecution also introduced the case of Trisha Parcaccio. Like we said before, they can't try him for her murder at this trial, but they use the story as more damning evidence against his character, uh, like the fact that he'd just been 17 years old at the time. It also fit in with his MO because he lived next to Trisha too and had been a family friend. So they used this uh, Trisha Parcaccio's case as more evidence against his bad character. 
I do have to say that during the trial, Michael Gargiulo's defense team did a really cracking job. And I'm sure everyone does know this, but just in case there is someone out there who doesn't, defense lawyers only need to raise some doubt in the jury's mind that the accused isn't guilty. They don't need to prove innocence. And really, and once you hear this, maybe you'll feel the same as me, but I really do think they did a good job of raising doubt. They started with the Ashley Ellering case and stated that there was not one single shred of evidence that linked Gargiulo to Ashley's murder. There was no DNA evidence, no witness evidence, not a single fingerprint or a strand of hair. The prosecution had actually used Ashton Kutcher as a witness on the stand and his testimony had painted a timeline for the murder because he had rung Ashley at 8.24 and then turned up at the house uh, just after 10.30. And that's when he saw the red wine stains that obviously transpired to be blood. So this gave a window of just two hours for Ashley to have been attacked and killed and for the attacker to have fled. The defence team used this to suggest that Gargiulo wasn't the killer and then it must have been Mark Durbin, the property manager that Sally mentioned earlier, who Ashley had been having an affair with. We know that Mark Durbin had been there with Ashley the evening that she was killed because there was evidence that they'd been intimate with each other and during his testimony on the stand, Mark did admit to having been at Ashley's. He said he'd been with her when she received that call at 8.24 when she just got out of the shower and then he said he left shortly after. The defence used both Ashton and Mark's statements to pin the crime on Mark. They said that he had motive because she had been going on a date with another man um, and that his DNA was all over Ashley and the home. And stranger still, they found an independent ear witness who said that they'd heard screams coming from Ashley's apartment just after 8.30. They said that the murder must have occurred at 8.30 at the time of the screams and that there was no way for Gargiulo to have got in and killed her in such a short amount of time between her hanging up the phone, Mark leaving and then the neighbour hearing the screams. They said that because of that, Mark Durbin must have in fact been the killer. And honestly, if I'd been on the jury, this definitely would have raised some doubt in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. It's all very valid points. So then they went on to try and rebut the Maria Bruno murder. They used the same argument. There was no eyewitnesses and there was no DNA evidence in the house. There was, of course, DNA evidence on that blue boot cover that they'd found in the car park. And this had Gargiulo's DNA on it, as well as a drop of Maria's blood. The defence argued that Gargiulo must have accidentally dropped the boot cover in the car park because, of course, he lived there too. They claimed that the blood had been on the pavement, probably from when the real killer had left, and that subsequently blood had been picked up off of that onto the boot. So I admit that that's a bit tenuous, but just like with Ashley's case, they give a jury a different suspect to consider. They presented to the jury Maria Bruno's estranged ex-husband, Irving Bruno. They showed the jury police reports of when Irving had been physically abusive towards Maria and a statement from a witness who had seen Irving pull Maria out of a car one time, throw her to the floor and punch her square in the face. At the start of the investigation into Maria's death, the police looked into Irving, first of all, as a suspect. They searched his car and they found drops of Maria's blood all over the interior. The defence presented this report to the jury and told them that Michael Gargiulo had not been the killer, Irving Bruno had been. And I mean, that is pretty damning. But what they didn't tell the jury, however, was that Irving had been cleared by the police. Maria and Bruno had been out for dinner that night she died and the restaurant manager confirmed that Maria had cut her finger at the restaurant and that is probably most likely how the blood got in Irvin's car. Yeah, and I think so. where my mind's going at this point is if these were two completely separate cases in both instances, yeah, you probably have got reasonable doubt here but actually what I can't get myself past and I know that this isn't necessarily... um, uh, you know, hold its own in the law, but actually, as the coincidence that Michael Gugino just happens to be on the periphery of all of these crimes, that does seem more unlikely 
than the fact that all of these women just had other people known in their lives to them that for whatever reason murdered them and poor Michael just happened to be there at the time. Mm, exactly and the point that it's not like Michael's just a random guy who happened to live next door to these people he has viciously attacked a woman in a very similar um, way Um, he's attacked her while she's been asleep and so like it's not like he's just the random guy next door who is a bit suspicious that he lived next to all these victims like he also has this incredibly damning evidence against him that he tried to kill Michelle Murphy and also that he's moved to all of these places he's very much seems to be unfortunately following some quite horrific crimes around the country and again that for me would i don't know it would quash some of that reasonable doubt i think that the defense are managing to raise her Mm, yeah um so on that the final charge to rebut um was that of the attempted murder of michelle murphy and although michelle hadn't seen her attacker's face her description of his height and being left-handed did match gargiulo and there was of course his blood all over michelle's property like we've said before and um all this blood leading away from her apartment as well so the defense couldn't use the same argument of lack of evidence this time but as we kind of mentioned earlier he said that he was possessed Uh, They claim that Gargiulo was suffering dissociative identity disorder, so that's formerly known as multiple personality disorder. The classic defence that every stupid moron uses when it's quite clear that they were there, um, because I guess it's it's their way of saying, yeah, I was there, but mentally I wasn't. And I think genuinely as well, for, for some killers, I think it helps them detach. A lot of these crimes are very in the moment, and it's not DID, but they're in the moment, and they're very passioned and and frenzied and that's a word we use a lot but actually you sometimes wonder whether them when asked in the cold light of day did you do this it's easier for them and protects them a little bit internally and emotionally if they can convince themselves that like you say it was them but it wasn't really them the ability to just detach themselves from the horrific things that they yeah absolutely i think it's a a coping mechanism and whilst we like to think of these people as kind of monsters actually they are people and they are going to be subject to similar coping mechanisms that that every everyday layman are Mm -hmm. During their rebuttal of uh, the charge against Michelle Murphy, they used Michelle Murphy's own testimony to try and uh, support this theory um, of DID. So in her statement, Michelle had said that he had been attacking her frantically, but that when he had been cut, he stopped. And this is where she kicked him off and he ran. And obviously, as Sal mentioned earlier, he turned around and he said, I'm sorry. And the defense are saying that this shows that he snapped out of his possessed state and realized what he had done and apologized. And I mean, it's a nice attempt to twist the facts, but it's surely 100% more likely that the reason he stopped stabbing her was because when he got stabbed, he knew his blood was literally spurting all over the crime scene. Yeah, absolutely. And he's not immune to pain as well. Mm -hmm. It's going to stop him in his tracks at minimum. Mm -hmm. And like you say, then at that point, he's got the realisation that all his forensic books that he's read on how not to get caught have just gone out the window. And he'd been so smart before and left no evidence at any of these other crime scenes. And these crimes had been unsolved for years. Yeah. Some of them decades. So like, yeah, he must have at that point just been like, oh, shit, like my blood is now everywhere. Yeah. So after three months, 79 witnesses and a nice road trip out for the jury to see the crime scenes, the trial was over. After several days of deliberation, Michael Gargiulo was convicted of one count of attempted murder and two counts of first-degree murder. On the 18th of October 2019, Michael Gargiulo's sentencing hearing began. The jury recommended to the judge that he should be sentenced to death. 
The final sentencing hearing was set to be held on the 28th of February 2020. However, on this date, the defence filed a motion to seek a new trial because the prosecution failed to share information regarding one of the detectives they used as a witness. So the prosecution knew that the detective that they used as a witness had posed as a deputy in 2018 and smuggled contraband into county jails. And the defence argued that if the jury had had this information um, about the detective, it might have compromised his credibility as a witness. I haven't found any evidence that suggests this accusation is true. Um, and I, I should stress that. But there's been reports in the news um, in the New York Times and the judge is taking it into consideration. So it would be huge if this was to be retried, but it could happen, especially as the punishment for this is so extreme. Um, as we mentioned earlier, Michael Gargiulo has still not stood trial for the murder of Trisha Pacaccio, but her family is very hopeful that he will be extradited to Illinois soon to face the heinous crime they believe he did to their daughter over 27 years ago. Wow, that's heartbreaking. And as you say, I really hope that it doesn't get retried, not because I don't think people have a right to a fair trial, they absolutely do, but because I don't think that uh, that police officer really has bearing on the, the real facts of this case. Ultimately, Three women have lost their lives here and one very came close and no doubt is living to this day with the scars of that. And mm -hmm. I don't think it's worth the effect that a retrial would have on the families of the victims and also Michelle to this day um, just because of a... Oh, I'm going to say this. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, because right, because of like one witness who maybe did something bad a couple of years ago but ultimately probably had no bearing on the jury's um, deliberation and probably had no bearing on uh, the outcome of this case and why the jury decided that he should be sentenced to death and why the jury found him guilty because everything that we've researched and that we've, we've spoken about today, uh, not once have I have you or I said, oh, and, and this officer came forward and he gave really damning evidence. It's not about him. And although, yes, they should have disclosed that information, you're absolutely right. It's not worth it. And it's already taken 11 years to get this to trial. Retrying it would just be awful. It'd be awful for the families. It'd be awful for Michelle, like you say. And also it'd be awful for Trisha Parcaccio's family because it just prolongs the time before he can come back to Illinois and get tried for their daughter's murder and, and they see the trial go through. So I absolutely agree. I don't think this should be retried. But I mean, if we hear any more information about it, we will definitely say in a later episode and update you that way. Yeah, this is definitely going to be a case that I'm going to continue to follow closely. So, as always, the sources that we use for this episode are linked in the description box. You can follow us on Instagram at infraction.thepod to see photos each week that relate to the cases that we cover. Uh, we can't thank you enough for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this episode and that you loved hearing Sally's posh tones over your headphones. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, everyone. <laughs> Please come back next week to hear the story of a very brave 13-year-old girl who was kidnapped and held captive for 88 days. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you next week. Bye. Bye.